Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Once we get the coronavirus under control, we'll need to be prepared to support a quick economic recovery. Of course, that requires us to know what the economy will even look like in the wake of this pandemic. I'm delighted to explore this question today with Chad Severson. Chad is the George C. Tao Distinguished Service Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Along with Filippo De Mauro, he recently wrote an excellent article for Vox EU titled The COVID Crisis and Productivity Growth. Chad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, the point of the paper uh, that you co-authored, the analysis that you co-authored, really looks at how uh, the uh, the coronavirus, the pandemic, will affect sort of the medium and long-term productive capacity of the U.S. economy going forward. But before I want to, uh, before I get into that, I want to uh, uh, just focus a bit on something else you wrote about sort of where we are right now, where we were heading into the crisis, and you and your authors co-wrote. Uh, the world entered into the COVID crisis in the midst of a 15-year-long productivity growth slowdown. While much debated, there is not yet a consensus on its causes. Uh, so no consensus on this, pro- on this productivity slowdown, which in a way has actually been going on maybe since the, the early 1970s. So there's no consensus. But what's your best guess? I think... I, I, well, I think the latter part, the last 15 years in the U.S., is probably a little bit of we sort of ran ran out of the low hanging fruit that the first kind of IT wave brought. And there was a clear productivity growth acceleration from mid 1990s to about 2004 or so, and you could sort of trace that through the economy. First, it was in the production of IT goods, and then it moved into industries that used IT goods intensively. So you could sort of trace out how the the new ideas were working its working their way through the economy and yielding productivity growth and then i think as sort of those first the the first kind of more obvious uses of those technologies were were harnessed then you start running into more and more difficulty finding new ways to to get productivity gains i think that is a good candidate for the slowdown of the last say 15 years you're right that if you take a broader view, with the exception of that acceleration I just mentioned, we are in about a 50-year-long period of pretty modest productivity growth. So somewhere around 1974 or so, it seems pretty stark in the data, actually. 1974 seems to be kind of special. Since that point, we haven't been able to really sustain, with the exception of the 10-year period I mentioned in the U.S., mm-hmm sustain average uh, labor productivity growth much above 2 2% per year and i don't have a a really sharp sense of if that's one explanation for that or if there are multiple things you know there are so many candidates my guess is anything that big and that long probably is multi-causal you know which things explain it and how important each one is that's a hard question and is that is that a question people are still currently uh, looking at? 
Uh, is there some, is there any kind of consensus on things which are some, maybe somewhat more likely versus somewhat less likely? So I think Bob Gordon is pretty confident of his, his answer, which is the nature of technological change and our ability to interact with it and create it has just changed since 1970. And we shouldn't expect to get back to those pre-1974 productivity growth levels again in the long run. I understand the case. That doesn't strike me as the, as the right explanation. One thing I've written about with Eric Brynjolfsson and Daniel Rock is that when new technologies come along, there is a period, and I mean a long period, we're talking decades, where the technology is there, uh, its potential is recognized in some general sense. So people could imagine, oh, wow, wouldn't this industry be different if, if they could figure out how to harness this technology and do this, that, and the other thing. But it takes a long time for this, that, and the other things to actually happen. You know, a good example that's really um, salient right now is e-commerce retail. I'm old enough to remember the 1990s, and people saw Amazon and other e-commerce companies, and they knew at the time, wow, this really might change the way retail is done. But even now, uh, retail is probably, you know, depending on how you measure it, 15% uh, or e-commerce is 15% of total retail sales. It took 25 years to get to that point. Um, and arguably, you know, maybe maybe the crisis will accelerate a little bit, but it just took a long time for the sector itself and consumers who interact with the sector to change behavior and processes enough for that e-commerce potential, which again was recognizable 25 years ago to actually start reshaping how things were done. So, you know, I think the more optimistic view of, of the current slowdown is it's kind of prep work for the next wave, but it's hard. Because we're all hoping for like an AI productivity boom going forward uh, and just maybe not a lot of, uh, evidence so far. So that's sort of the optimistic cases. Don't rule it out. We could just be still in sort of the figuring out part of the process. Yeah, exactly. That's the, um, the idea. So, and uh, one, one of the things that I, I write about is, you know, I love, love economic growth. I would love for the American economy to sort of be able to grow in the future somewhere close at the pace it's grown. Uh, it was it's grown in the past. Most of the forecasts you see about uh, the growth potential of the economy is it's about a 2%, maybe, you know, whether it's from the Fed, CBO, maybe in some Wall Street sources, is that the sort of growth potential of the economy is 2%. If it's going to be more than that, we need stronger productivity growth. Uh, but what is sort of concerned me and what you, uh, you know, address in your analysis is, uh, you know, the impact of the coronavirus on the productive capacity of the economy. And my concern is that productive capacity will be hurt in such a way that instead of being a a two-ish percent economy, maybe we'll end up being just a one percent economy because of all the damage it's going to cause. So, looking at it now, and it's still early, the kinds of things you're looking at, or we should be looking at, uh, maybe just tick through a few of them. One, workers, labor. Uh, you want workers to be productive, to have to be skilled. What will be you think the impact on sort of the productive capacity of, of workers as far as human capital goes? So, I think. 
there are two, two things we talk about in the study pulling in opposite directions here. So one is that kids are out of school. Um, now I know there's, there's an online replacement for that. My, my four are all, as we speak, in their quote classes. It's not clear that that's a perfect substitute. I don't, I don't think it is. Um, and we don't know how good of a substitute it is. If this goes on for a while, say into the next fall, you could imagine a case where students are effectively missing, you know, maybe something like a quarter year, maybe even half the year of schooling because of this. That might not, not sound like a lot, but if you go read the, the literature on educational interventions, if you find something that gives students an extra quarter year of schooling, that's a huge deal. That is a big, very successful intervention. So that's something one might worry about going forward is there's you know, a decline in, in the amount of schooling that students are getting now as a result of having to be out of the classroom. Pulling the other way is at the tertiary level, we know there's good evidence that uh, schooling is countercyclical. So uh, more people get more training, more college, multiple levels uh, during downturns than booms because you know, the opportunity cost of their time has fallen. And so that's going to tend to pull the other way and raise the, the average human capital level in the economy. The sort of final empirical question of which of these two countervailing effects is the, the biggest will determine whether the crisis has a net positive or negative effect on human capital. But those two things struck us as the most important things to, to look at coming out of this and on the labor side. Um, it seems to me that there, that there also might be, and maybe you've sort of included that in your answer, just the sort of, you know, learning by doing aspect, uh, yeah. whether or not we go out and, you know, I'll take classes or, or, or you know, or, or, or what have you versus it's forcing everyone who's working at home to become a little more IT literate, uh, yeah. whether it's Zoom or other sorts of productivity software. I mean, that's, do you, do you think that's something significant or potentially significant? Sure. I mean, I think a lot of people have learned how to do their jobs in ways uh, that they didn't have to worry about before. That is developing human capital. I think the question going forward is how applicable is that new knowledge going to be as we hopefully get back to a pre-pandemic health situation? So some things will probably persistently change about the way we do our jobs. Um, but other things might not. Other things might be stopgap measures and they're not really good substitutes for the way things were done before. That latter case, well, people learn how to do the stopgap, but it's not really gonna be useful going forward. The, the former case where the way things are done in particular kinds of businesses or industries change more persistently than now that training that people are are, are doing, maybe because they're forced to, um, will have more persistent, beneficial, long-run effects. Um, well, that's, that's labor. And then there's, we have, cap, we have capital. And while this is, a, while this is you know, this, this pandemic is terrible, it's not a war. We're not seeing the sort of the large-scale destruction of physical capital. So, how, so how, what, is the impact, what is the impact on capital, if anything? Yeah, so you're right. We're not we're not uh, mowing down uh, factories and losing productive uh, capacity that way. 
this has been mentioned a little bit in the context of, for example, of the of oil extraction, the oil and gas industry, where people are worried about, you know, what this is going to mean for that industry. What we're not for, we're not going to forget where the oil is or how to drill for it and pull it out of the ground. That that's always going to be there. I think that the effects on capital in, instead are some kinds of capital are probably going to be obsolesced faster than people expected. Let's say I don't know for sure, but people don't fly at the same rate they they do did before the crisis. Well, you've got a bunch of planes now that aren't worth what they were before. You know, maybe some hotels uh, in far-flung locations similarly aren't are 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 not going to yield the economic return one would have expected from them six months ago. Um, kind of pushing the other way is we we seem to be we already were in a low real interest rate environment. We've sunk only deeper into into lower interest rates that's going to make it cheaper to uh invest in new capital and you you can see where that new capital would come from the new physical capital it's going to be things like health infrastructure and sort of whatever you want to call public health robustness that kind of stuff so there'll be a little bit of reallocation across capital types it's not clear like you mentioned though that there's going to be an obvious pull positive or negative on the overall level. Well, if we're, I mean, if we're investing in health infrastructure, uh, does that, ob- does that obviously boost productivity? It may, it, it very well may if we have another, uh, pandemic, yeah. but if this is a once in a hundred year thing, we're sort of spending a lot of money to deal with something that may not happen anything like this again for, for generations. So very good me, point. It doesn't, seem, it doesn't seem obvious how it, yeah. Now, very good point. Whenever you are spending resources to address sort of tail tail issue outcomes, you might not ever or not in any you know reasonable horizon see any payoff to those to those investments. And if we don't have it's been a hundred years, 102 years since the Spanish flu, if the next coronavirus is 102 years from now. You're right. Some of those investments we're making, even though, while maybe wise, along certain dimensions, you're not. It's from a product measured productivity point of view, it's just going to look like a bunch of non-productive capital. So that's something. I, I, I was trying to think of another example. I guess I thought of all the sort of uh, you know spending on technology updates, approaching the year 2000. Sort of the everyone was worried about the Y2 bug, Y2K bug, shutting down yeah. all the computer systems, and we spent a lot of money uh, to prevent that from happening, but there was also a kind of a knock-on effect that we all had the, we all had kind of an upgraded computer structure. Is that, is that analogy you think that is that analogy at all relevant you think for this situation? Yeah, that's possible. We talk about that um, not just in the, in the capital sense, but in sort of the productivity kind of firm level efficiency sense that you could tell a story where a shock like this has, it's such a big thing that it basically forces a reckoning on the part of companies to think about the way things are done. And that reckoning sort of makes them realize, oh, you know, we were doing this thing for this and that reason, but that was decided 25 years ago because of something that doesn't matter anymore. Why are we really doing it this way? Can't we do it this other way instead? And you get you get productivity gains that way. And we, we know that productivity gains do come from companies' responses to market conditions. We know, you know, for on the demand side, for example, pharmaceutical companies shift the aim of their development efforts based on demographic patterns coming 10, 20 years in the future. 
On the supply side, we know that companies that work in high relative wage environments use more capital intensive technologies and vice versa for companies in low uh, relative wage environments. So companies do respond to the market environment around them when figuring out how to produce things. Whether, you know, sort of a broad-based, otherwise negative shock to uh, is is going to induce these kind of reckoning-driven productivity gains is an open question. It's actually been proposed before in the context of environmental regulations. There's this notion that called the Porter hypothesis that being subject to new environmental regulations actually could make companies more productive for the reasons I was talking about. They're sort of forced to do things differently, and rather than just changing things on the margin, they sort of reorganize themselves from the ground up in a way that's hopefully optimal. The evidence is a little mixed on that. Um, but on the other hand, coronavirus is probably a much broader shock uh, to companies than environmental regulations were and are. And so I think a lot of companies are going to be dealing with, why do we do things the way we do? Is there a better way to do it? And you could imagine that there, uh, uh, you could see productivity gains coming from that process. Uh, one of the things I've been concerned about is sort of the widespread destruction of kind of small and medium-sized businesses. And on one hand, I see it as a bad thing because, well, if we want the the recovery to be strong, we want these workers to have some place to go to go back to. And if these businesses sort of disintegrate, you sort of lose, <laughs> you know, all you know, all the sort of you know, their not just their connection with employees, their connection with suppliers. Sort of the you know the things that that company that that business has learned over the years, you kind of lose all that, and that way I guess would be bad for productivity. But if the result is more you know s- smaller firms being then snapped up by bigger firms, aren't bigger firms more you know don't they generate a lot of productivity? Uh, very important for productivity growth. So which of those is sort of again, uh, how do you balance off those two things? Sort of the the downsides of sort of business destruction versus maybe ends up being a little bit more of a creative destruction kind of thing? That's a great question. Yeah, you, you, The things you mentioned, they, they are sort of two different phenomena, but they they act in, in concert in the way you're describing. So on the one hand, and, and we talk about this in the study, that there's a lot of intangible capital that can get destroyed when a company falls apart. And re, it, it is more than just you know, the factory, the storefront, whatever it is, the physical capital, you got to go find new workers. Those new workers don't have relationships uh, with each other or with the company that they did before. You have organizational processes that have been developed, maybe uh, good and bad, but you're throwing out the good with the bad. And so you lose that sort of intangible. And so there is a real cost to the destruction uh, of of a company. And, you know, the idealized bankruptcy process, you get to keep all that intangible as you reorganize, but it's not clear that it works that easily. So you've got that on the one hand. On the other, as you mentioned, it tends to be that larger firms are more efficient. And, you know, during normal times, if you see reallocations towards larger, more efficient firms, well, that raises productivity in the industry. That's, That's a good thing. The question, I guess, is, is what's going to drive the business failures that we're unfortunately likely to see coming out of this? If it's 
if it's highly related to productivity and the, the businesses that go out of business are systematically less productive than the ones that stay in business, then the scale is going to tip towards the productivity enhancing side. If instead survival is determined by other things like market power or political connections or who can race to the bank faster for the PPP, right. whatever, that's not related to productivity. Well, now you've just destroyed a bunch of this intangible capital uh, uh, needlessly. And um, I think that empirically is the key question going forward. Like what drives business selection, business survival uh, coming out of this? If it's about productivity, you know, yes, there'll be some stuff destroyed as business go out of business. That's not that's not great, but on the other hand, what's left that you're reallocating activity towards more efficient, efficient producers. If it's instead driven by other factors, now it's like a double whammy. You're destroying all this intangible capital, and you're not getting any of the productivity gains from reallocation on on the other side. Um, and I tell you, that's going to be one of the first things I look at as soon as I, as soon as I get data on it. I mean, there's I mean, there's a concern that you have companies, you know, big and small that, that were sort of passing the market test as of January, but yeah. now they're in trouble. And they're, well, should we, maybe we should bail those out because obviously they were, they seem to be viable businesses three months ago. If not for this, uh, then they still would be viable businesses. But then there are companies would seem they were shaky, you know, before the, before the crisis. And then there, then there seems to be a lot more hesitancy or concern about bailing those companies out. And if you bail those companies out, then maybe then you really do create the zombie companies that were failing the market test and are only in existence going forward because of you know cheap money, whether from the taxpayer or from the Federal Reserve. I think that's one of the concerns with a company like Boeing, which seemed to be in a lot of trouble uh, you know, leading into this crisis. And do you do you bail them out or or, or not, and you know, let them go bust. But oh boy, you know, they're a pretty important American company. That seems to be you know number number of the concerns around that kind of situation. I I think you're exactly right. I totally understand that concern, and, and you frame framed out the things I was talking about very succinctly. It's how discerning is the selection sigh going to be as it cuts through the economy? Is it going to select on? things that the market was selecting on before, you know, efficiency, or is it going to select on market power, political con, uh, political connections, that sort of thing. And the, the simple fact is some companies are going to go out of business because of this. How discerning is that process going to be? And I'll also just mention, since we're on it, you know, if the exit of some of these companies makes room for entry, then you want good entrance. What makes me nervous there is that we've been seeing decades-long declines in business formation rates. And you, maybe that'll turn around, um, but certainly the history prior to the coronavirus crisis doesn't make one encouraged about the th notion that you're going to have a bunch of great new companies starting up on the back end of this thing to replace the ones that go out of business. Well, indeed, one of my concerns is that we will be, and I'm not sure to what degree this has played a role um, uh, in, in the lack of business formation, but sort of a risk aversion that you're going to see that we're going to become the super cautious society. Consumers aren't going to want to spend. Businesses aren't going to want to invest. You know, government will suddenly become worried about deficits again. And maybe, you know, most importantly, people will be 
uh, more reluctant to give it a go and try to start a business, whether it's a whether it's a kind of a smaller, more mom and pop business or something that actually can turn to a really high impact uh, company down, down the road. Would, should I be concerned about risk aversion becoming a bigger factor uh, in the American economy? You know, that is something I've been thinking more about lately. Uh, other people have raised this over the past several years. Uh, this is kind of related to Mark Andreessen's recent essay, Let's Build Stuff. You know, why, why don't we build things the way we used to? I don't, you know, and, and this also overlaps with a bit of the context about the productivity slowdowns of of, of recent and maybe even prior decades. Um, I think, you know, the, the evidence on this is still not well developed, but I think it is something to be worried about and to keep an eye on because just all sorts of measures of dynamism, for lack of a better word, have been falling. I mentioned the business formation, but also just job turnover, geographic mobility of American workers has been falling for decades. Maybe that's in part tied to this risk aversion thing. And if this just makes it worse and exacerbates it, yeah, I, I that's not gonna be a good thing. Um, so it is something I'm, uh, I would worry about and, and want to keep an eye on. My guest today has been Chad Severson. Chad? Thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks. It's fun. 